Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Kieran Maughan. Kieran is the force behind Rockstar's Cars, an organization devoted to researching and documenting the cars, personalities, and social environment of the first generations of rock and rollers. Cars and music have gone together since the invention of the teenager in the 1950s. Escape, freedom, technology, the modern world, all of these things are wrapped up in the mythology of rock and roll and the automobile. Nick has spoken with nearly 60 rock stars, including Tony Iommi, Ginger Baker, Nick Mason, and many more, about their cars and what they meant. To watch some of these interviews, visit rockstarcars.co.uk. In the meantime, enjoy our talk. I like that head back there. Wow, that's, that's, a, what is that? Is that new or is that, a, is that vintage? Uh, no, it's, you know, I moved my Dr. Evil chair. So it's, so I'm five foot seven. So she's that tall. <laughs> so she's two, she's two 15 inch cabs um, plus head. So, but I got it today. Um, I've, I don't know. I've, I've over here's some Fender stuff. There's my old Gibson EB3 there. Um, so this is sort of music corner. Um, and I said to my wife a few few months ago, I should look for you know a, a proper bass stack. I always wanted one. I'm getting to that age now where you've got to scratch the itches, haven't you? <laughs> um, and I saw this on eBay, and it was too good to be true. And it was local, so I thought I'll go and get it. And I've got a big um, now. I don't know how you say it. Is it, it, it's written H-A-R-K-E, so it's an, a US brand, so H-A-R-T-K-E. Hartley. Hart, Hartley, right, so I've got one of these, um, sort of a, a four by 12 there, um, and that, that kicks, but th this will make you bleed. Um, Have you plugged it in? I, I did when I test drove it earlier, um, but um, the guy then went, yeah, I've got to keep these original cables and these Lovely cables didn't come with it, so I've ordered some, so they'll be with me tomorrow. Gotcha. What's that? Uh, what's the Gibson I see peeking out over there? So in the, the Gibson there is it's a bit of a unicorn. Ah, um, so they made 248 EB0 F, okay, which is again sometimes Gibson, greatest manufacturer, or arguably one of the greatest guitar manufacturers in the world, but have some of the biggest flops so they made 248 of these bases ever okay they stopped making them in 1965 1965 was when the rolling stones used a fuzz tone in satisfaction and everybody <laughs> wanted the fuzz tone sound just as gibson had stopped doing it which is revolutionary so what you've got here is so there is your fuzz tone electronics mm. so it's basically an early early active bass um, but somebody in a previous life had put an eb3 bridge pickup on it so as there was a big hole and, and i restored this and i got a luthier to help me restore this a few years ago um because it just i didn't even know they did them then when i found out they did and this was available it just needed saving and then then i really found out how rare it was um but if you imagine what Andy Andy Fraser's sound would have been like, and um, what Jack Brewster's sound would have been like if they could have overdriven from the bass mm -hmm. rather than overdriving on the sound on the on the amps, and it was all contained. So, Fun. the bass the bass that nearly changed history that never did. Um, I used to play with a guy who uh, had an SG bodied bass, and um, right. he had a tremolo put on it. <laughs> the thing the thing was on. Um, it was a machine, man. It was a beautiful bass. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, so it'd be EB0 is uh, just one pickup. EB3 is two, isn't it? Is that so it? I, yeah. Yeah, so I guess this would have been like a big Bigsby bar or something, would it be? Or? Yeah, big, thick, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, a Bigsby, yeah. yeah. I've, I've never never heard of a big, big <laughs> Bigsby bar bass. It's not easy to say, is it? No, no, no. Um, but it's it's great to listen to. And the... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and those basses, man, they had that that sort of that Gibson sustain and warmth that are just that's that that to me is the the Gibson trademark, right? That that yeah. sustain. Oh man. Yeah, you don't get it from a Fender. No, no. But I, I've always liked I've, I've 
played both types of basses over the years, but because I'm quite short. Um, actually, short scale is much easier now I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, something, uh, a squire might be about as tall as you are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a precision there. That I mean, a jazz. You yeah, get that precision jazz. Bit yeah. on the back of the jazz and a, a big, big jazz. So he's, yeah, it's nearly as tall as me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, something like a big ambelic or uh, something like that that sort of, you know, Bootsy Collins would play would be just, yeah, no. I would literally have to play it all up by the double octave. All right, we've established that um, that music gear is one of your uh, vices. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about, I mean, I you know, lay out for me. What What is the story behind and with Rockstar Cars? Okay, so I, as you can see, I'm a, I'm a failed bass player. Um, so I, I, I suppose our band didn't quite make it. We nearly got a recording contract. That's all I ever wanted to be was being a rock band and earn money from it. That didn't happen. So I w- went off and, you know, found a career that I was quite good at. Um, which was IT, computers, um, that paid me you know, quite nicely. And that let me afford a reasonable collection of cars that I liked. Um, so my, one of my main dri- drivers, God, that's dreadful, is, is classic cars. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I've you know, amassed a bit of a collection over the years and that, that was good. Um, I've you know, used to have quite a few bases over the years. I've thinned down a bit now. I'm playing a bit less now. Um, but I suddenly thought, well, I'm really fascinated and have always been fascinated about the first, I suppose, the first and second generation rock stars. Mm-hmm. Um, so late 50s, right through to sort of 80s. Um, and the fact that there was no manual on how to be a rock star. Um, you just kind of got together with some like minded people, wrote some cool songs, got a deal in sixties and seventies, you'd, you'd earn hopefully a lot of money. Then the tax man in this country, in the UK, um, used to tax you horrendously. So you were then told to spend the money very quickly and very rashly. Um, otherwise the tax man would have it. So all the rock stars had big country houses. They all had, um, Bentleys and Aston Martins and all these things. And they shopped in the finest shops of granny takes a trip. Um, and dandy fashions and all these amazing places. So, so they, they're draped in the, in the finest finery. They're driving the world's finest cars at 20 years of age, which is amazing. That had never happened before. Right. So you think culturally, um, that's, that, that wouldn't have happened in pre-World War II, would it? Um, you had maybe a bit of, I suppose, ostentatiousness with, with, with Art Deco. Mm-hmm. but typically it was people who had money. So you could maybe create a product and, and make money. And, but that was few and far between. Um, in the 60s in London and, and obviously over in the States, you had a generation that was making money from songs, from, from lyrics, from being hairdressers, being designers, being painters. They're all earning money right. being creative, which had never really happened before. Right. Um, and these these people weren't moneyed people. They weren't old money. Well, some of them were, but typically you could be. I mean, if you look at the Beatles, um, they they were you know scallies from Liverpool, right. who just happened to gel in that magic way that they did, um, and all all the planets aligned. And look what happened. That's magical. That yeah. probably can't ever happen again. To that meteoric sort of rise, if you like. And so. This is the combination of two of your interests and passions. You're sort of taking the music side of your brain and the car yeah. collecting side of your brain. And uh, what's the, what was the, um, what was sort of the Genesis moment? Like what brought the two together for you? Um, I, th- I think it was probably quite early. Um, I think I was probably about nine or 10. Oh, wow. and I remember my, my parents bought me um the book on the Rolling Stones, that big um, sort of picture book by David Dalton. Um, and it had Jared Mankiewicz's photos of the Stones in, I think, 66, yeah. of which um, Mick Jagger had the DB6, but, of course, Keith Richards had Blue Lena. Yeah. And it was probably Blue Lena that started that. Wow, how cool is that? Um, Bill Wyman had his MGB. Um, Charlie Watts didn't drive. Um, and Brian Jones, I only found that this out recently. 
um, Brian Jones was banned from driving at the time. <laughs> so outside his, his, his London residence would normally be his Rolls Royce Silver Cloud with the registration number DD666, um, which is, of course, he took as Devil's Disciple 666. Um, and it wasn't on the shop because obviously they kept it away from Brian because he was back from driving. Right. So I think that's that's what started it. And then I suppose over the years, I got more into cars, got more into music. Um, and then I think when, you know, I suppose in my late, I suppose late 30s, maybe, I started to think maybe I could make this into a book. Um, and we interviewed a few people. We used to send a questionnaire out um, back in the sort of pre-tech days, um, which was okay, but most of the musicians didn't have photos of the cars because we have we take digital photos for granted now, don't we? But back in the day, you would take some photos, uh, unless you were Jared Mankiewicz or Nick Cooper or one of the great photographers, you would send them off or, or take them to the local... Um, chemists to get them developed right. and they were sending them away which actually was quite expensive so as a, as a culture it wasn't massive to take photos until probably late 90s and early noughties when it all became much much cheaper um, so hence a book was not going to work because there just weren't any old photos and you can't have a book about somebody's cars or a number of people's cars with library photo um and my friend you know, was um leaving a, a job in tv and we said why don't we start filming it and then i suppose arguably we could still do a book we could still do a magazine article um but also like we're doing now we've got the 3d piece to camera so that's mm -hmm. what we started and i think we're about 60 interviews in now um so uh hoping that we'll be able to put it all together in some form of TV format in the next, hopefully, six to 12 months. I mean, that's a lot of content that you have stockpiled. Yes. Um, yeah, and COVID hasn't helped us. Sorry to date this piece now. I've probably just dated your podcast now. <laughs> that's <I>? okay. <laughs> but I didn't, well, didn't, didn't come on wearing a mask. So, you know, uh, 20 years from now, when it's in the archives at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we'll worry about it then. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but COVID's not been good to us. Um, unfortunately, we've lost some artists, but we've also not been able to, to talk to some artists. So we've actually started doing some of the interviews just like this now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's good. In fact, I think we spoke to Bobby Whitlock recently, um, uh -huh. who's really, really great interview. Um, we, and he, I don't know if you know, mm -hmm. he doesn't perform as much. He still performs, but he's, uh, he's painting now as well. Wow. Wow. So he's work, he's painting, he's a clever, talented guy. So uh, his work's well worth checking out. Um, so we spoke to Andrew Lou Golden as well. Um, and the reason I've had to cobble all of this together tonight is because my normal ring light, I've sent it off um, to a member of Humble Pie. who will be <laughs> doing something soon. Nice. Well, let me so, ask you, for, for um, take, the, take our listeners through a little bit. What's the format of the interview are you looking to understand the like uh, let me not make too many assumptions what yes. when when somebody agrees to talk to you what yes. are you hoping to find out what, what what's your aim so our aim is to i suppose our aim is to make the person i'm interviewing smile because if i can make them smile and and take them back in some cases 55 years with a smile and have some fun then that interview is going to be a lot better um, it also means the, the sort of memory juices keep coming back if it's, if it's an enjoyable interview. So we tend to do a pre-call, um, whether that's over the phone or on Zoom or whatever, and I'll write down what I've previously been told as an aid memoir. Of course, this is a face-to-face -face interview I'm talking about, not, not a Zoom one. Um, in front of us would have a list of cars, for example, that they've owned. Um, so they know what's coming up. They know what we're going to talk about. Um, and occasionally, may, most amazing stories come out because everybody's comfortable and everyone's having fun. Mm. Um, so we tend to talk about, we have a standard set of questions because there's certain things that, that we always aim to talk about, which obviously is first cars. We're not after anything salacious either. It's, we just want good, good family fun. 
Um, <laughs> so you don't need um, to know what they did so, in the cars. <laughs> I, no, we got one form back from an artist I'm not going to name for, for legal reasons. Um, and they did say some of the things they did do in the cars. Uh, uh, so we took that question out of the questionnaire from that point <laughs> onwards. Um, so no, we just, I mean, typically, um, some of the stories that we have are really nice. So there's a, there's a drummer from uh, the Tremolos called Dave Munden. And unfortunately, Dave's dead now. Um, but one of his stories was about his first car, his first MGB that he bought with the decent first royalty check. And I said, what was the first thing you did? He said, I took it around to show me mum. <laughs> that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of thing. And then, then he remembered that. And then he remembered, yeah, and I took my Aston Martin around there when I got, and then we went on a trail of his Aston Martin. Um, so, yeah, I think if you look at probably on the website, we've got some of the people that we've interviewed. We try and keep it as vaguely up to date as we can. Um, you'll notice there's lots of smiling. We try for as many smiles as possible because yeah. um, it, it, it feels good to smile. It feels good to talk about stuff. It's, it's nostalgia. I'm not trying to find out why the band broke up in 68 and what was the angst all about. Um, I don't care. What I want to do is put them back into a, into a, a moment of feeling good, which is typically some of those early first cars. Yeah. Um, we do ask them if they've had the odd smash, and, of course, that normally normally comes up with some great answers um, yeah. and normally quite funny ones. If if And, again, to be clear, just in case any of any... any potential interviewees are watching this if there's anything that is that they don't want to talk about or there's a there's an accident that was very bad we don't want to talk about it so if we're talking about things where you know cars roll down hills because they haven't put the handbrake on and that sort of fun stuff rather than right you know right so do you find that you are typically are you reminding them of things that, that are long forgotten? And are you researching in advance? Like what were the oh, cars? Yes. Like you, you know, the stories sort of coming in or, you know, the cars at least. Or... One artist told me that I knew his cars better than he did. Yeah. And he actually rang me to ask a question about his own cars, <laughs> which I found as pretty a, a good compliment. Um, and um, we've, by our research, we, we try and get as detailed as we can um so we've had access to some of the car dealers and some of the car manufacturers archives so we actually in the case of ginger baker we proved that he had three jensen ffs so F jensen ff i don't know if you know the car i don't know it's an incredibly rare incredibly valuable performance coupe from the from i suppose late uh, mid, mid, mid to late 60s british manufacturer um, british, british manufacturer but with, with um, a Chrysler V8 engine and a Torque Flight automatic gearbox. Mm, but it was the, the world's first ever um, production four-wheel drive sports car. Wow. And it had anti-lock brakes too. Wow. So a lot of the drummers liked them. So Ginger Baker had three. John Bonham had two. Um, Mitch Mitchell had one. And in actual fact, those three, which depending on which side of the bar you're talking about, you know, or we all sit at the bar talking about which is the world's best rock drummers. Those three would certainly be in there, wouldn't they? Yeah, and they all owned, owned the same car at the same time. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but because we got access to the, the factory files, we managed to prove that the Baker family had a car that they didn't know anything about. So he had the car in a, in a, in a separate address in London. <laughs> what was that about? I don't know. I would suggest probably reading the biographies, the Ginger Baker. If you've ever read the, Baker, the, the Baker's biographies. Um, I, I haven't, no. It's well, it's well worth doing. Um, they're entertaining for sure. Yeah. And that'll give you an idea of the different lives of Ginger Baker. Right, right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, they were, they're good. So I think um, they're ghostwritten by his daughter, Nettie. Um, and she's also written some experiences as a rock star's daughter, too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, they're definitely worth reading. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think they've had a, a fairly eclectic lifestyle over the years. Yeah. And um, who were some of the first gets that were top of your list that you were that you were able to connect with and, and, and hear from? 
Uh, well, obviously, Ginger Baker was one of them. Um, I think people like uh, Andy Fraser from from Free, because obviously I try and speak to bass players if I can. Um, <laughs> but um, but so those those were sort of fairly early. I think Andy Fraser was the first interview we shot on camera. Um, and again, he's no longer with us, bless him. And he was lovely. He was delightful. And also when we turned the camera off at the end, he indulged me by talking about basses for 10 minutes, which was, <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, yeah, so, but I mean, we've talked to every, you know, everybody that, that would talk to us, we've talked to. We'd love to talk to more people. I mean, there were so many unanswered questions. And I think now's the time to get, get those sort of interviews done. Um, you know, because I think this COVID thing, again, to mention that dreadful word, has made us all think twice about how much time we got left. Yeah, yeah. So, may, may I ask you about a couple of uh, specific sort of interview subjects and just get your impressions yeah. or maybe an anecdote? Yeah, okay. Um, tell me about Nick Mason. You know, he's he's somebody that I sort of, he's associated with cars yep. and driving. Yep. Um, I guess as a collector, as well as a, a driving enthusiast, what was it? What was the conversation with Nick like? The conversation with Nick was good, but Nick's very focused on racing. Mm-hmm. So our interview um, was very good, but we had to go off piste slightly because he wanted to talk about the race cars because that's of more importance to him. And I think that the, the, the most important, significant car he still got, which is that two fifty GTO um, that he's had since the seventies. So we had a, a good long chat and I think it was interesting when I asked him wh- which love came first cars or drumming. And he said, cars clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I said, is there a point at which you thought you could make money out of this drumming malarkey? And he said, not really. No, it didn't really occur. And quite a few of them have said that to me. Um, I think Carl Palmer said, yeah, I worked out that I wanted to be on show a bit more and I couldn't get that in the orchestra. And also I was one of 58 people in the orchestra. So that wasn't going to pay me very well either. <laughs> Stars quite sharp. Um, <laughs> went, went the exact other direction, the fewest number of people as possible in order to split. The- yeah, <laughs> absolutely. 58 to three is pretty good math. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. So I think, I, I think that, but coming back to Nick, um, yeah, I mean, his road cars, which is typically what we talk about, were just a means to an end for Nick because um, they would take him either to gigs or they would take him to racetracks where he would do the, the, the thing that had bitten him more than anything, which was racing cars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is he, uh, what, just to, uh, to go down that rabbit hole a little bit, he yeah. was a driver and now he, does he own a team? What's his, what's his association with racing now? I don't think he owns a team now, although he does own a number of race cars that do, that do race. Gotcha. Um, okay. Mainly at historic events. Um, things like Goodwood um, and those type of race events. Um, and, you know, they're, they're competitive and the whole, it's a family thing because his, his um, daughter races and I think his daughter married a racing driver as well. Oh, so that's interesting. Definitely that's in the blood. Yeah, yeah. How about, um, how about Tony Iommi? I, I thought it was so fascinating that uh, he talked to you about, what, a Lamborghini? Yeah. yeah. So Tony's had about, 60 cars and our interview was one of the longest actually um and the duck egg blue lamborghini Miura dominated the majority of the interview wow um probably because it had so many problems <laughs> um so it was so noteworthy to talk about but also because it was just such an amazing machine so if you think about the you know the, the early 1970s most cars, the fact that they could do a hundred mile an hour was something the manufacturers played on. Oh, this will do nearly a hundred. And of course this thing would do, you know, half as much again and a bit more. This thing would get to your magic hundred quicker than you said, stop. 
you just didn't have them in England, especially in right-hand drive. But also, Tony realised that it wasn't going to be as reliable as he wanted. So he also bought a Ferrari Daytona. Hmm. Now, I don't know anybody, and hopefully maybe somebody will come and prove me wrong on the back of this podcast. So I don't know anybody that owned the two cars, which were amongst the, they were the supercars, but owned them together, new at the same time, and had them parked outside their house. <laughs> so he was about 22, 23. He had a Rolls and a Bentley. Um, he had the, I think he had an Espada, then he got the Mira, then he got the Daytona at the same time. Um, and they just literally sat outside his house. Um, and if you wanted to get somewhere, he'd take the Daytona. If you wanted a, an adventure, he took the Mira. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and if you look at that car now, it looks like it's from another age anyway. And that was, you know, we, we now look at this where we are now in the, in the 2020s. Imagine what that was like in the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. And again, imagine what it was like as a 22-year-old as a rock star. From Birmingham. Yeah. From Birmingham, yeah, whose mate was John Bonham. And in fact, one of the things that I thought I might mention tonight was a John Bonham story told to me by Tony Iommi. Oh please, yeah, thank you. So they they used to they used to go out together, um, and I'm not sure which Jensen it was because I own one of John Bonham's Jensens, um, so I'm not quite sure if this was mine. And I didn't own it when Tony told me the story, so I didn't ask the final colour of the thing. Um, but they'd gone out for an evening, and John Bonham had had a couple, but nearly wasn't. But it was fairly early in the night, so it's still still good. And he was driving the Jensen very, very enthusiastically through the, the streets of Birmingham. And something went wrong. I didn't quite make the corner. And he ended up plopping the car on the top of a mini roundabout. <laughs> Nobody was injured. Um, obviously, there'd be a great noise because the Jensen exhausts are quite low. And um, they stopped and came to rest on top of this, um, this large traffic island stroke roundabout. Um, and Tony was a bit like, what am I going to do? And uh, John just got out and said, right, let's go to the pub then. <laughs> they just left it where it was. That's something that, that always struck me in, um, in stories about the stones from that era that you talk about is, you know, Keith would be driving around, he'd crack up a car and get up and just leave and just leave the car sitting in a roundabout or up on the curb. Or... <laughs> Quite a few of them did. Yes, quite a few of them did. And they always, often typically had somebody who would go and mop up after them. Um, so uh, typically there'd be a, a sort of a, a team or, or some people, you would, there'd just be somebody you phoned to say, yeah. it's on the roundabout. There was one, I don't know if I can name them, I won't name them just in case because they haven't given me an interview yet. Um, I'm hoping that they were, were discussing on email. So I'm thinking, I'm, Fingers crossed. Um, and they had a very nice, um, called a Chinese eye, Bentley. So it has a sort of lights that go in like that. Beautiful coach built Bentley. And uh, one evening, this particular artist phoned his friend and business partner um, and said, uh, can you come and sort the Bentley out? It's kind of at the Chiswick roundabout. And uh, I happen to know that the, the chap sorted the cars out quite well and he said uh well what what should we do and, and this person i nearly dropped the name there um said um best bring a trailer and uh the car guy said uh let me be the judge of that so anyway this particular person went off down the pub um my friend turns up with the trailer and yeah he needs the trailer uh because the car is upside down on the center of the roundabout and the car's gone into the roundabout sideways. It's popped the beads on the tyres so, and just well, bluff, and just landed very serenely on its roof. So they got it back on the, they got it back on the road again, got it put it back on the trailer. Uh, and I've got a fantastic shot that's really, really badly out of focus shot of this car um, taken by this person. And literally you see that, that there's no there's no tyres on the car anymore. It's sitting oh. on its rims. That's incredible. Um, but it was such a well-built um, Bentley that the roof was barely damaged. 
because wow. things were built, built and built to last in those days. And have you found that most of these people um, are the cars in a collection now, or are these distant memories they're talking to you about? Like, have the are the cars gone? Like, what's the <sighs> is there a through line there? Most of them aren't in their ownership anymore, typically, except with a few notable exceptions. Um, so obviously Nick Mason's GTO, um, that's a, a very notable exception. So in most cases they are with other people. So we probably know the whereabouts of, I don't know, 500 of the, these cars wow. around the world. We know they exist. Um, in actual fact, um, I'll share something with you now. I'll take it out of this protective case. This is one of the things that we talked to Andrew Legolden about. So this is the ledger of all of the cars that were sold by Brian Epstein and Terry Doran. So they're called Bridal Cars. Um, so oh, it's very, very fragile, but there is the kind of ledger. And it shows what, what was sold to whom where it was bought from and where it was subsequently resold. Um, in fact, it's even got Andrew Lou Golden's telephone number there. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a research uh, tool or resource, that right there, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a key. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's an amazing document. Yeah. Um, but largely, so they, th this, this company sold the majority of the cars to the Beatles between 1964 and 67, half of the cars to the Stones, two thirds of the cars to the Yardbirds, the Moody Blues, they're all in there. Um, but the, but the success rate of survival is typically the Beatles. Um, the Beatles cars have survived more than the Stones and more than the Yardbirds, oh. unfortunately. Well, let but, me ask you this. When the cars left the the artist's possession initially. Correct me if I'm wrong. My assumption would be, if it were, if it was in the '60s or early to mid '70s, the cars were just sold to the next person, and, and it wasn't necessarily thought of as I'm buying a rock star's car. Is that, or were people even at that point? No, buying I think, them? I think they'd already thought of that. So if you think about the, the mid '60s, celebrity wasn't a thing. There wasn't what we now have as celebrities. There was actors and actresses and uh, and uh, music artists that were famous, and not many other famous people. So we believe that this was the first company that used to destroy the logbooks, and it used to have a new logbook for when they sold a car. So when you look at the ledger of the price of the cars that they were selling, they were not selling them for a premium. And in actual fact, they were selling them probably for very little more than they paid for them when they took them back from the celebrity. They wanted them gone. So quite, so almost the opposite. Let's get rid of those. Um, and we, we, we know a couple of people who bought cars from this company. Um, and one of them said, yeah, I thought I'd just turn up a, a little um, Austin Myers dealership. And there was loads of Aston Martins there and I couldn't work it out because he just went to buy a car um, and two thirds of their business was bread and butter British cars. And of course, there was a, a special elite section um, that was full of Bradford Minis and Lincoln Continentals and amazing stuff that were rubbing noses with uh, Morris Miners and Singer Gazelles. <laughs> so quite an, interesting, quite an interesting story in itself. But also, um, you know, I think... I think bridal cars may have sold more Radford Minis than anybody. Wow. So, because the, the Stones ones, the Beatles ones, yeah. um, I think one of the Yardbirds ones was a partial Radford. So it's literally, it's all in there. It's brilliant. Um, but the survival rate of some of the cars isn't great. Um, I, I guess the survival rate is better in the u.s because your climate's probably drier than ours um but oh okay i was misunderstanding survival rate i thought you were saying it didn't survive its time with the rock star <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
Oh, no. I mean, a lot of them did because of the value of the cars. And in actual fact, one of the cars in this very book, I spoke to one of the artists who's in the book and I said, um, we're talking about the two cars that he'd purchased through Bridal Cars. And he said, yeah, one of them was written off. And I looked back at the ledger and I said, no, it wasn't. It was probably repaired. And he went on tour, um, left a crashed car. Um, That's the crashed car, Mr. Manager. I'm going off on tour. Um, I'd like a new one when you come back, please. Um, and just assumed that the car got scrapped, but it didn't. Um, because the, you can tell by the, by the trading price that Bridal Cars gave for the car that it was shiny when it went in. Mm. So subsequently it was rebuilt. So you'd, typically with the value of these cars at the time, you'd have to hit it fairly hard. So Keith Richards' Bentley Blue Lena had two or three crashes over the years, and it still exists to this day. And uh, if I nearly bought it years and years ago. Um, and uh, kind of glad I didn't, because the guy who restored it is a, is a friend of mine, or you know, project managed the restoration, and he described it as banana-shaped. <laughs> what, the frame or the body? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the body was just ever so slightly banana-shaped. And now it's, and they've restored it to beyond perfection now. It's arguably better than when Keith Richards took the uh, took the delivery from HRI. Well, weren't weren't Bentleys or aren't Bentleys notoriously? I mean, they're they're hand built, right? They're they're yep, and they're notoriously finicky. I mean, aren't uh, as an American, my understanding is that British cars in general tend to be they require a lot of maintenance. Uh, I don't think I can argue with that. Okay. Um, and not as a yeah. slight, just as a no. I d- so typically, um, if you look at something like a mini, it's quite reliable because it's quite simple. So that's it's it's simplistic best. Um, something like a Rolls Royce Shadow or Corniche. Um, some of the electrics are notoriously complicated. Right. Um, some of them is very, very very well built cars, but like anything else, you need to use them regularly. And if you park them up, don't use them, um, then things don't go well and things don't work again. So I think maybe some of, I mean, I've got something called a Jensen that we've talked about already, and that has a Chrysler engine. And and, and Chrysler um, 383 is basically a truck engine. Yeah. Not in a massive high, high state of tune. So arguably... A Jensen for a rock star would be a much more reliable thing than a Ferrari or an Aston Martin mm-hmm. because it's got a truck engine and possibly right. an automatic gearbox. Um, whereas um, I think we, I was told a story this week about um, Peter Frampton had a DB5 um, and uh, he eventually painted it white. He said he regrets doing that. Um, but it, at the time it was in burgundy, uh, sort of deep red mm. colour. A lovely car, and um, I've heard this from him from him on Twitter, and from the first hand, uh, a gentleman called Andy Bound, who he's played with him, and obviously Andy's a, been a member of Quo since '77, and he said, "Yeah, the Aston wasn't wasn't really very happy that morning. Um, it was coughing and spluttering and coughing and spluttering, and then there was one almighty bang, a load of black coke." Sort of decoked itself um and he said it went like a stabbed rat um, <laughs> he, literally, he could not he could not catch it um and he said he just could not catch that car and it was lovely to think that that um that little rabbit hole of a story came from twitter from from uh, peter frampton picking up on the back of something from andrew lee goldham um and then we got it firsthand from andy bowen he said yeah i remember it well um, he said it wasn't much of a race because once the Aston really got going, he said he left me for dead. <laughs> so to take a car like Blue Lena, which is sort of, a, you know, it's an iconically known car, even to maybe yeah. casual music fans. Um, in this day and age, would you generally be able to track the provenance all the way back to Keith or are there gaps in the ownership? Uh, Keith's one, well, in fact, it's a tale of two cars. Um, so Blue Lena... Keith owned from new until 1976. And then you can track its history ever since. 
um, because it was always constantly owned. It was never neglected or it might have not been maintained to the top standard, but it was never left out in the open or anything like that. Um, but Keith loved the car so much that when it was written off in 1976 and subsequently rebuilt by somebody else, he bought another one. So, um, so since 1966, I think he's constantly had a Bentley Continental Flying Spur. He's actually owned the second one for longer than the first. Um, and that's the thing I like about some of the car ownership stories is how long they've had them. And it was just something just that, I suppose, captivated whatever it was that it captivated for them that made that moment so special they kept it. Actually, you know, it's amazing you telling me that. That clears up a conversation I had with him about Blue Lena. Um, right. Because I asked him if he still had it, and he said yes. Right. And he was referring, he must have been referring, he must call both cars or think of both cars as the Bentley and yeah. didn't differentiate between the original and the one he currently has. That's interesting. No. Yeah, and uh, so um, the car, the second car, um, was subsequently repainted orange uh, by a late friend of mine with Keith in the, I think, 1980. And there's some archive footage where you can see that car uh, in bright orange in, in, in Paris. Um, and now I think it's back to gunmetal. Hmm. And as far as I know, it's still owned by Keith. And that was... That was that the, the last person to tell me that was about a year and a half ago. Yeah, this would have been maybe four or five years ago now, and he said it was right. on block. It was on blocks in Redlands that he still had it, yeah. but it was yeah, yeah. And that uh, and Marlon also said that to me about ten years ago that it was on blocks. So That's amazing. I think I think it's now. I think it is now back and nice and shiny again. From from what I was told last time, I'd lo I'd love to sit in. I sat in the first Blue Lena once it was restored to perfection and it was delightful as you can probably imagine a new Bentley is because he's literally so beautiful, but they, they, they wanted to make the world's best Bentley. So they state that they, they made it perfect. And there were some imperfections in the car that they took out, which were Marlon's teeth marks. <laughs> so, um, in one of the corner of the crashes, uh, Marlon damaged his teeth in the dash. Um, and when the car was restored this last time, um, they made it perfect, so you can no longer see those indentations. See, that seems Which, like a restoration you work around and you leave that. <laughs> I would have left, I would have left the teeth marks, but uh, but yeah. unfortunately, I, it's not not me signing off the restoration bills. Um, but so I'd love to sit in. The new, well, I'm calling it the new Bentley. He's had it since 1966. But yeah, I'd love to sit in that and uh, just get a feeling of what that feels like. Yeah, um, I mean, all of the all of the stories of either that Bentley or just hearing of people using them as like touring cars, they sound like there's an acre inside of them in terms of space. Well, like, there's so much room. Yeah. Well, there's a reasonable amount of room. Um, they are big cars. The boots are big, so you can put loads of gear in them. But they were fast. And the reason they were fast is because they had alloy bodies on them. So we were talking with somebody the other day, um, with some of the guys in Humble Pie, and they, the Humble Pie had one in their band. Obviously, the Stones had, uh, Keith, Keith had one, Charlie had one, and um, Mick had another version of the Continental. So he had two-door Chinese eye. So they all had these things. Because Carl Palmer had one. Um, John Anderson from, yes, Rick Wakeman had a couple. Um, but because, and they were buying these older cars because um, the shadows had been released by this point. Um, and they were buying these older cars in the 70s, so, so late 60s and 70s. Um, and in fact, Carl Palmer went into one of the, I think HRO in, on, on, in central London and said, I want, I want that car. They said, we don't do it anymore. And they suggested he went uh, to another dealer outside London. Um, but, um, yeah, they were such a lovely thing to drive. They were light. They were fast. Um, and they just give a very special feeling, a very coach-built special feeling about them. 
I'm not sure that rock musicians took to the shadow as well. They took to the Corniche. Um, maybe, maybe it had that more special feeling to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Rolls and Bentley and Aston Martin seemed to be a, a stamping ground for, for our musicians. But actually, arguably, we don't just want flash stuff. So one of the finest stories is Bill Buford uh, from King Crimson and Yes. Um, and, and he will wax lyrical about a Volkswagen Passat. Which, <laughs> and I, I that, are, they, are they Passats or are they called Dashers in the US? Oh, uh, they're Passats here. They're yeah. Passats now, yeah. right, okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, he said he had a couple of nice cars in the early days, but then really just preferred the practicality of Passat estate because he could get his full kit in a Passat estate. It's funny you bring that up because I was thinking of asking you earlier if there were, if there were uh, stories like that. Like, did anybody, you know, did they have a Volvo because it was just safe and reliable? Or, you know, did somebody yeah. have just a, a mundane daily type car that any punter would have and they just, they loved it because they needed it to be that and not, not a ostentatious Bentley? Lots of them have, yeah. Uh, the Beatles had a series of boring cars that, like Austin 1100s and stock standard minis, that they could either drive or be driven around London in. Um, many of the people, like Carl Palmer, said, I've had three cars for as long as I can remember, and there's always a, a fast car for him, there's always a family car, and there's always something rugged, maybe a, a 4 by 4 or something. Um, so they've all got different things for, for, for different lives, if you like. And obviously some take it to uh, the extreme. Um, so we used to talk to Neil Pert, um, mm. bless him. Um, and he loved cars. And he could find any excuse to buy a car. So, yeah, some of, some, some of, us, some of us like cars more than we should, more than that's healthy. So I don't know. I like Carl Palmer's approach. I think that's nice. The portfolio approach is nice. You know, he still has, yeah, he still has those three things. They're all different. Um, and there's some similarity over the years, but there's always those three distinct um, sort of demarcations, if you like. Yeah. So who's on the wish list? Have you spoken to Jeff Beck or Ian Gillen or any, you know? Love to speak to Jeff Beck. Um, would love to speak to Keith Richards. Desperate to speak to Keith Richards. Would love to. Would like to speak to Pete Townsend and Roger Dolphy. And again, the, as as we as we go through time, I think we get more. I suppose we get more people get more comfortable with us. So now our roll call of who we've talked to is yeah okay they're going to give us a good interview and it's got hopefully it's got to a point where the momentum just means that this will happen. Um, so we're we're doing some of the pilot at the moment. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the the list would be great. I mean, I'd love to speak to Paul Weller. We've spoken to Rick Buckler from the Jam. Um, to have all of the Jam would be great. Uh, to complete my Slade um, portfolio would be good. So we've spoken to half of Slade and not the other half. Um, <laughs> so would love would love to to, to 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 get their viewpoint because actually the thing I like is if somebody says I don't really like cars, but I'll talk to you. And invariably, you'll find there's some lovely, funny stories in there, um, even if they're not that into cars. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've, like Susie Quattro, for example, she was lovely. Um, she says, I'm not that into cars, uh, but, you know, we'll see what we can come up with. Um, and, yeah, she came up with some great stories. So I think that's the thing is it's not just for petrol heads. Um, again, Bill Bruford said, I'll struggle to come up with a, with a story for you because uh, I don't like cars um, particularly. And then came up with a good 40 minutes with the chap, um, including, I think, him and Rick Wakeman nearly getting arrested in America. Which <laughs> he said before that he'd nearly forgotten all about. So, um, and again, he said it was a great, great fun little story um, of limousine times. Again, limousines, tour vans. In, you know, incredibly um, charismatic, uh, particularly the, I don't know what the tour vans in the US were like, but tour vans in the UK in the late 50s and early 60s were really bad. I'd have to imagine, yeah. But I don't know, did they do this in the States where the fans would graffiti the tour vans? I've not heard of that as a thing. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. Right. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, I've probably given you a rabbit hole of Googling for the evening now. Yeah, I? exactly. So if you look at the Who tour, the, the Who, the Stones, the Beatles, if you look at pictures of their tour, tour vans rather than the tour buses, um, they're, they're all scratched with um, love you, um, you know, nice messages all over them. Um, so that's probably worth a Google. Yeah, that's really neat. I have to ask you, um, you know, there's, I think, you know, there's a mythology around the car in America and especially of the, of the stars of the generation you're primarily focused on, right? Like that sort of first, second generation of rock stars, you know, came of age in the fifties and sixties when the car represented some specific things here in America, um, prosperity, open road, freedom, um, post-war, um, you know, the modern world to an extent, uh, progress. And I wonder, is there an analog to that in the UK? Like what, what did the car mean to people of that generation? Was there a car culture? It was the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, except our photos um, aren't as good as yours because you have, I mean, if you look, it was a great Neil Young photo of him with his Jensen going down a road. Uh, I can't remember who took the photo. Um, but it's just an amazing open road. And this photo, this Jensen is a straight road. Um, your roads are bigger than ours and longer and wider. Um, <laughs> but apart from that, you know, you have a love affair with the Mustang, with the Corvette. We have a love affair with the E-Type and the Mini and the yeah. Rolls-Royce and Bentley. Post-war was not a great place to be. You know, we had austerity in right through to the mid and late 50s. Yeah. And, and of course, then in the late 50s, teenagers became invented, didn't they? You were allowed to be a teenager, now to have an opinion and to listen to records and to, to, do, to do different stuff, um, which then started this thing that we all love today. Um, so, yeah, arguably the same journey, just slightly different flavour. Yeah. Um, just the same as we've had some artists that are broken in the UK um, that were American and then vice versa. Um, and then bizarrely some acts that never quite broke the US that should have done and vice versa. Yeah. It was very similar times. If you look at Jimi Hendrix's big break was the UK, wasn't it? Did American muscle cars or cars of the sort of 60s era make it to the UK or were they oh, collectors? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, so let's look at, so in the generation one of rock stars, there was a band called Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers, late 50s. They'd had enough of their tour van because it was really bad. Um, so what they did was they, they had a big, I think it was either a Galaxy or a Chevy Impala. <laughs> and all the band used to go in the car and they put all the gear in the trailer. So American cars weren't common, but they were here. Um, and that all went really well until the trailer decided to detach itself down the motorway. <laughs> and of course, that meant all the band's gear was wrecked all over the motorway. Um, so I think they ditched the idea. But no, if you, if you look, at, look back, um, Cliff Richard had um, Corvettes. Brian Ferry had a studio baker. Um, so we had the cars. Andy Fairweather Low had Mike Jeffrey's GT500 Mustang. Mm. Now, a GT500 Mustang back in the 70s on 70s tyres and wet, greasy British roads was virtually undrivable. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, <laughs> and Andy, Andy Fairweather Low used it as a daily. <laughs> People here um, barely used it as a daily. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's, there's quite a funny story that does go behind that. So, um, and he just got the car. And I think he bought it from the estate of Mike Jeffrey. So it's probably 71, mm -hmm. 72. And um, yeah, Andy, oh, this is brilliant. This is you know, really fast. I'll have this. This is epic. So he has... Uh, has the scar, and I think it was maybe in Bravo or something like that, one of these teeny bot magazines, um, and maybe a newspaper article with Andy on the, on the you know, front with his uh, GT500, and uh, the license plate. So somebody from our tax office got hold of the license plate and went, there's no import duty being paid on that. 
<laughs> so they seized his car. So he'd paid the money, the regular money for a car, thinking it, import duties had all been paid. Um, and then he was on the front cover of a couple of magazines. And then the next week it's impounded. And he didn't have the money, didn't have the money to, to unimpound it. <laughs> but it took a while to get it back, bless him. Oh my goodness. So these, um, these are the sort of funny stories that we get out, which you would just literally, we need to find them. We need to tell these stories. Yeah. So in our, in our last few minutes together, a couple of final quick questions. Um, what's next for you with the concept? Like what, what are you, you know, what are you hoping to do? Are, are you pitching it to television? Are you still acquiring content? No, we've, we've got two people that are interested. We're putting together the pilot now with with material that we already have um so it's just a case of getting the time to edit that up um and then it would be nice if we can ever get the world back to normal again um to do the interviews that we've had to postpone um for some time which is you know it's frustrating just as frustrating as i guess all the musicians that can't go on the road that can't that can't earn a living at the moment it's dreadful um and um you know we've got to be very careful because you know, we want to make sure that our interviews are safe so yeah. but I, but i also don't want to do them with masks on i don't i don't think that would be, that would date date the interview somewhat yeah. so is we've just got to be careful how we restart interviewing again yeah but, uh, my, my my final question is uh well couple of questions in one uh how many cars do you have now and what's your day i have yeah uh, i have 16 which is arguably too many arguably. So, <laughs> arguably too many um so i use a porsche 993 we've got an xc90 i have a z3m coupe if you know what one of those is i don't know so, if i so, do it's so it's a funny bread van looking thing. It's one of the world's ugliest cars, um, but it's also one of the, the, the last, I suppose, non-binary BMWs without any driver aids on it. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. And I have, have an army Land Rover that we, we use as sort of daily things. Um, so that's what we use regularly. And then we've got you know, some, some other stuff that we, uh, that, yeah, that you'll see. Um, as you watch the stuff. So yeah. we, I bought an E-Type Jaguar when I was 26 and I still have it. Because I think t- that the Jaguar is a, a car that my understanding is it takes a lot of effort to keep it on the road. Like it's, it, they break down a lot. Uh, not really. Oh, touch wood again. Um, no, I mean, if it's sorted and you, I mean, I typically only use it in the dry. Um, so I'll go do 50 miles in it, put it back. Um, it touchwood has been quite reliable, but it was fully restored when I bought the car and I've done lots to it over the years to make it better, make it slightly more drivable, make it stop. Um, <laughs> he types it all very well, but the really early ones didn't stop, <laughs> which is, you know, primarily a problem. Um, and it well, how do you, how do you stop it? Downshifting? Uh, well, now, now, now it's fine. But back in, yeah, when I first got the car, it was on really skinny tyres um, and it had the original brakes. And I had a couple of really very hairy moments where somebody in a modern car stops quickly and they expect a classic car to do the same. And it won't do the same. So you've got to, if you drive an old car like I have for years, you've got to look two or three sets of brake lights in advance and you brake to the two or three in advance, not the one in front of you. <laughs> Because if you break to the one in front of you, you're going to be part of that car. <laughs> oh, that's a great tip. Thank you. <laughs> that's quite right. But uh, yes, yeah, so hopefully we can all get back to some some form of normality soon. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending time and sharing your stories. That's okay. Is it possible to plug our Twitter and our email address? Please. Give them to me here, and then we'll also include them in the episode notes. Uh, so our Twitter is Twitter is just at Rockstars Cars, um, and our website is rockstarscars.co.uk, um, where you can buy some of our artwork. Uh, 
plug. <laughs> and our email address, because uh, we're fairly, fairly open about what our, email, our contact details, it's info at rockstarscars.co.uk. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kieran Maughan. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.